The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, while I'm getting set up here, if you guys could turn to John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. That'll be our text for today. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Sorry for the noise. You guys now see what I grew up with my whole life. So, (laughs) Um, This is our text, and to give you a little bit of background, I'd like to read a few verses for you, a few verses that uh, might be foreign to you but would not have been foreign to the audience at hand here in John chapter 8. The audience at hand here is predominantly Jewish in context. And in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, discussions are arising. They would have been discussions that would have known the verses I'm about to read to you from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, in particular, says this in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 7. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 45, I would say this in verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these And a few chapters later in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's where we find ourselves at the tables in the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. So if you would read along with me. Keep those verses in mind. Keep that Exodus chapter 13 verse in mind because that's what would have been on the heads of the people in this crowd. John chapter 8 verses 12 through 20. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from, or where I came from, and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 19, and so there they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 
We arrive in the Gospel of John after the presentation of the Son in chapters 1 through 4, where that beautiful forerunner, John the Baptist, comes before Christ as was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and on. The comfort of that coming Messiah would come. And John the Baptist presents Jesus in a beautiful way. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. And we get into the chapters in the Gospel of John about the opposition of Christ. The opposition to his message. The opposition to who Christ is in his entirety. As we'll learn through several comments today on this text in John chapter 8, the opposition was largely, in fact, to the statements that Jesus made, in particular to seven statements, and today is one of those seven I am statements, one of those seven ego a me statements. They are the most strong statements in the New Testament that we have from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. In particular today, what we are going to find here is that Jesus in this text, in our pericope, testifies to the fact that he is the light of the world so that we can walk in eternal life and know eternal truths. That's what I want you to get from our time today. I want to know that every person here is walking in eternal life and knowing eternal truths. In particularly in verse 13... We will talk about Jesus' testifying of eternal life. Or sorry, verse 12. Testifying of eternal life in verse 12. That will be what we learn from that verse. And we learn that he testifies of eternal life with this statement. Again, therefore Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light. You see that he's picking up on a conversation from earlier, but... We're going to have to do a little bit of work here, and I'm sorry for some of the confusion, because this is actually sandwiched around a text that we may not believe might have been in the original manuscripts. When we say that, we believe the oldest manuscripts, particularly John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, we believe were not in the manuscripts closely attested to of the time of Christ. If you have any more questions of that, I can answer that later. But the point being for our conversation here today is the fact that that brings us back to verse 52 for our immediate context. Verse 52 in chapter 7, we see some context in chapter 7 as well of the Feast of Tabernacles. What's going on? You guys know what this feast is about. It's one of many feasts that would happen throughout the year. In particular, this was during the time of October. This would have been commemorating the end of the harvest period, we can imagine for ourselves, kind of like a Thanksgiving of the Jewish culture. They would have came from all over the country and celebrated the tables and talked about God's provision. Particularly that time in Exodus chapter 13 where God just brought them out of deliverance from the nation of Egypt and was wandering with them in the wilderness. They would have a pillar of fire that would not go out by day or by night. His provision was there all day long and all night long. He never left them. And in particular, during this time, he would use this as a time for family gatherings. And if you go back to chapter 7, in the first 10 to 15 verses, you'll see that Jesus didn't join the disciples at the tables for celebrating this. He said his time was not opportune, but the time is always opportune for them. Their time of discipleship with the families and Jewish culture would have been opportune at every time, just like it is opportune for us at all given times. But Jesus in particular did not want to create so much of a havoc 
to be captured yet. So where he went, I guess a little less instigating, although not really, was to the temple. It says that in John chapter 7, verse 14, but when it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. You know, Jesus, in what we call the Cana cycle, as he went about back and forth through certain towns, he visited certain places multiple times, he cycled throughout the towns to see if maybe the first time he watered wasn't when some would come to the faith. But in the midst of all these times, he set time aside to celebrate, commemorate, the times of the God of the Old Testament. And in particular in this time, he comes in this and he teaches in the temple and the discussion arises. And out of that comes the statement, I'm the living water in John chapter 7 verse 38. And these people are curious. They don't know what's going on. So he's in the temple and he's teaching and he is in this discussion. And before I get into more of the context that's going on there, The temple was an important place for him to be at this particular time, in particular to the connection of the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they would have been, again, commemorating that time of provision, being in booths in the heat, being led by the scorch of uh, the pillar of fire in the nighttime, by the clouds in the daytime, as we learn in Exodus chapter 13. And the connection to us here is that in the court of women during this time, there was a ceremony they would do at the night, particularly the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, and every night except for the Sabbath night, they would light torches in the temple to commemorate the torch, the pillar of fire that Jesus had for them as they were going in the wilderness all the way from Egypt to Sinai. Jesus often manifests himself in the Old Testament as the illuminating light, as we read in those Isaiah 53 and 56 passages. And we would see that this is not foreign even to the Greek culture of that time. You know the procession of the Olympics starts with the flaming torch in the front leading them as the idea that they are led in honor. This was a statement that Jesus would have made and it would have said, I am the illumination itself. I am the light of the world. They would have remembered passages like Exodus chapter 13, verse 13 through 15. I am the I am. That same verbiage would have been the same verbiage that Yahweh would have used in the Old Testament. And they would have said, he's claiming something far greater than just being the illumination of philosophical Jewish reasoning. Which would have been the Lagos. Maybe a familiar word for you. It would have been different than the idea of Stoicism. Those who would st- sit on a porch in the Greek times. The word for Stoic in the, old te- or in the Greek language is actually a word for porch. You know, people on porches like to talk a lot. <laughs> and they would be sitting on a porch and philosophizing. Well, I believe reason comes from this. I believe truth comes from that. And they would say that truth is within every single person. He would play on words here with these cultures. Again, with the Greek culture and the Jewish culture. He's claiming to be the illumination himself as a result of this statement, I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself with the God of Israel who gave them this time of feast, that pillar of fire by night. He's identifying himself with an illumination that is revealing truth, not just grabbing at straws like relativism does in our culture today. We understand that this would have taught them That not only is he a light, but he's an uninterrupted light. Day and night, drawing back to the illusion in Exodus chapter 13. 
He is the light of the world, and there are no other lights. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father except through me. This was exclusivity. The, before the word, actually indicates what we call a par excellence definite article. It's like when you say, the Redskins, you know which team you're talking about. When you say, the light, you know which light he's referring to. There is no other light that is in the world that can bring this. No Stoicism, no Hinduism, no Islamism, no anything else that is an ism. It is only his light and his truth revealed because he is the light that is necessary as a result of a dark world. And so, as we think about this statement, we've got to think about the crowd that's here. Particularly in John chapter 7 verses 40 through that verse in 52. We got some characters at play here in the crowd. We got some people who are skeptical, some people who are adversarious, opposition towards Christ. In particular, let me draw your attention to John chapter 7 verses 40 through 44. Group 1 is the crowd. They say in verse 40, this certainly isn't the prophet. Kind of in an unsure way, they say in verse 41, this is the Christ. Others were saying, surely the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Verse 44, some wanted to seize him. You know, when you preach the truth in the Bible-believing churches, sometimes our churches can be this way. We've got multiple crowds. We've got different ideas about what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. And the truth is that Jesus had no care or concern for that. He only had a care or concern for truth that would pierce the heart. You got group two in verses 45 through 46. Group two, here's the officers. The Pharisees sent out the officers. These were those who were to seize him. But they came back puzzled because this man knew what he was talking about. He wasn't only a man, he was God. And they say this in verse 46 of John chapter seven. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I pray that if we come out of here today not knowing or not having the eternal life that is in this message and not knowing the three eternal truths that are in this message, that you will know that this is a different message than you've heard before. Walk away from here saying, no man has ever spoken like this before. Speaking of scripture. (laughs) You got the group three, the Pharisees, the opposition towards Christ. In particular, they say in verse 47, you have also not been led astray, have you? Speaking to the officers and to the Pharisees and Around in verse 48, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And then you got character number four. Thank God for Nicodemus. Because of John chapter 3, him and Jesus had some alone time. They had a conversation about birth and regeneration. They were in systematic theology together. They were understanding the doctrine of justification and how it comes about. It's a monergistic, a soul action of the Holy Spirit upon the soul of a person to give them new life, to give them eternal life. And that man is amidst them and it says this, Nicodemus in verse 50 of John chapter 7, he who came to him before being one of them. Strong evidence here that John the Baptist was possible, or sorry, Nicodemus, (laughs) Nicodemus was a disciple at this point, possibly not in chapter 3. But in chapter 7, he was. And it says here, he reminds them of the law. Because they're worried about the zip code. Galilee. It says here in verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? 
But the Pharisees are playing quick and easy with God's law, with the Pentateuch. They're playing quick and easy, and they say in verse 52, You are also, are you not from Galilee, are you? Again, the zip code. What's up with the zip code? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They're so worried about so many things that you and I can be worried about. Instead of listening to the statement there in John chapter 12, where he testifies of eternal life by saying, I am the light of the world. I am those ego me statements, seven of them in particular in the gospel of John. And it's good if you teach your kids at the table, all seven of them, knowing them. What each one of them means and the emphasis that they're bringing out. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. The crowd's worried about what? Physical sustenance. They're worried about bread being fed, fish and loaves. He's saying, I don't worry about bread, I worry about the bread of life. John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Not the Stoic light, not the Greek philosopher's light. I am the light. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. He's the gatekeeper. In John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. Because people are being led astray by other vines. But out of all of those, none is as contrastive and as necessary because of a dark world than I am the light of the world. Light is naturally contrasted with darkness. We understand that in this world. We understand that we need light to turn on rooms. We need light to expose uncleanliness. And that's what Jesus is saying here. For the Old Testament saints, they would have known what it meant. They would have meant provision in the darkness in Exodus times. For the Greek, it would have meant honor and victor as you process forward in the times of victory in the Olympics. And for John, he was even more insistent. It meant that he was to be signaled as the eternal light giver. That verse that we read in 1 John chapter 5 is very similar to the purpose verse in John chapter 20, verse 32. He did these signs among men so that they may be proof, and by proof being eternal life. It's interesting that John, the Gospel of John, 80% of it is repeated in the epistle of 1 John. Through third John. He's infatuated with light and darkness contrasting. He's infatuated with the fact that light will give revelation. True revelation. And its object is those who are in the world. As we continue on in verse 12. The object of Christ's affection is the world. The world that makes it necessary to have light shining in the darkness. Makes it necessary for our deeds to be exposed, John chapter 3, verse 20. Makes it necessary for God to come into this world who had no darkness in him at all, 1 John 1, 5. We understand that God came into this world and the darkness did not comprehend it, John chapter 1, verse 5. And we understand that some here today may not comprehend it as well. But we pray that the comprehension of it is through the fact that he testifies he is the light of the world so that you may have eternal life as it says here in John chapter 8 verse 12. And so that you may know three eternal truths as a result of his eternal life. Because you are the object of his affection, of his redemptive affection. I pray that you here would be that whom he died for. He's speaking beyond the cosmological arguments of the Stoics. 
He's speaking beyond the laws of nature, of the Gnostics. He's speaking beyond all of it and saying, you have no idea the light I'm talking about. I'm talking about that very same light in the Old Testament, the light of Yahweh. I am He. I'm the reason for it all. The Lagos is not in you, it is in me. I am God. Like I said before, these I am statements would have drew, drew back a Jewish audience to Exodus 13 and to Isaiah 45, those statements of I am, the I am, I am Yahweh. Let me draw our attention real quick in this next statement as he continues to go on what it means to have the light of the world, have eternal life. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Seems pretty simple, right? But then why did he write the, go- the gospel of First John, or sorry, the book of First John? They should have got it. John chapter 8 was written. They might have had it in their hands, or at least in the temple or synagogue. But Jesus knows that this isn't the first time they're going to hear this. In fact, John continues this theme in 1 John. He continues this theme, theme in John chapter 1, or precedes this theme of John chapter 1. He talks about light throughout the entire book of the Gospel of John. In Ephesians, we know that the world makes it necessary to live in the light and not walk in fellowship in the darkness. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our powers are against this kind of darkness, particularly a darkness that is led by rulers of this world, by the powers of this world, by world forces in this world. Darkness necessitates light. Light accomplishes its mission by exposing darkness. And so as we walk into a church, as we come in here today, allow it to accomplish its mission by exposing the darkness in your life. You have a little fellowship in the darkness. Let it lead you into the light. Don't be like those who hide and seek or hid from the light in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. But be like those who walked in righteousness because they loved the light. We understand that Jesus' light has no zip code. doesn't care if you're from Galilee or if you're from Jerusalem. It doesn't care if you're from D.C. or if you're from Baltimore. It doesn't care if you went to community college or John Hopkins. It goes wherever it is necessary. Because sin is pervasive in our world. This is a dark world. We came into this world totally depraved. We came into this world needing to be revealed the light of the God of the universe. We came needing... Jesus to say, I am the light. Because our mind in Romans 1 and 2 talks about how we're just affected by the effects of sin. We can't understand it. We've got to be illuminated to the truth of Scripture. And Jesus is saying, I am the light, Old Testament saints. Don't come here in profession of the Feast of Tabernacles when I am the tabernacle. Don't come here praising the torches and the pillars of fire in the Old Testament when I am that light. For you here today. We've got to think, what was it about them that made them fellowship and follow in the darkness? When we know some of the context that gives us some illumination to this verse 12 was in John itself. We know in particular, John had to remind them in verse 13, 12 and 13 of John chapter 1, that they were really worried about the blood. <laughs> They really cared that they were Jewish. But he says, not by the blood, but by the will of God. 
In John chapter 2, they get themselves caught up in a frenzy in another time of celebration where they were using a celebration time and a time of sacrifice as a source of commerce in the church, the money changers. They were using an exchange rate, basically, a temple tax to take advantage of people. So they let family get in the way of being blinded by the light. They let commerce get in the way of being blinded like the light. They let legalism get in the way. The Sadducees, man, they had a Mishnah and Targum and rule for everything. You couldn't pick up your pallet on a Sunday. We learned about that a little earlier in John chapter 5, didn't we? They also let legal, um, politics get in the way. So many of them were worried that Jesus was going to come but not get them rid of Rome. Jesus came for a far greater reason. He didn't come to save, or sorry, he didn't come to save them out of chains. He came to save their soul. And we also see that humanitarianism has the way of getting an effect, uh, the effect of getting in the way of his main mission and purpose sometimes. As he did fulfill the needs of some physically. He healed the rich man's son. He healed the man who was in crutches near the pools. And ultimately, he wasn't there to feed their stomach. He was there to feed their soul. I am the bread of life. But they were letting all of those things, family, commerce, religion, politics, humanitarianism, get in the way. And what he's trying to say is, let me draw you back to what I told you in Isaiah, what I told you in Exodus. Remember, I am the I am. I am the light of the world. I'm not here to save you from Nero. I'm here to save you from judgment. John chapter 3 verse 16, or sorry, verse 19 makes it very clear that the reason why John chapter 3 verse 16 is so important is because it is a judgment. Jesus' salvation means that those who do not receive his light, do not partake and walk in the light, have judgment. This is the judgment, John chapter 3 verse 19, he says. But he wants them to get it here. He wants them to follow not in the darkness, but follow in the light. All four groups of that crowd, that they would know the light of life. In particular here, it's interesting, he uses a different word here for follows. It's not the word for disciple in the New Testament, Matheteu. It's actually a different word. It means the entire behavior and devotion of the Christian. Not necessarily Matheteo, who's the word for disciple that we see in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. That word meaning a practitioner. Of the faith. But here, the entire behavior of the faith, the devotion of that Christian, it's not for the show, but it's for the Savior. It's entirely the relational aspect of the Christian. You might have heard it been said, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the word here that's being used. Are you following Christ? That's why he picks it up in 1 John so much. It's what? John is so focused on the relationship they have with him that they're not there for the bread, but for the bread of life. That they're not there for the water, but for the living water. That they're not there just for philosophical arguments and reasoning, but they're there for eternal life and truth. He used this in particular in John chapter 1, verse 37. Both of these words together. He says, disciple, the two disciples in John chapter 1, verse 37, the two disciples, that's that normal word we see, the practitioners, heard and 
heard him speak, and they followed him. They heard and they followed. See, a Christian is one who not only knows the truth, but has an intimate relationship with the truth. It doesn't just sing those songs from a heart, it sings those songs from a heart of worship. A true believer follows in obedience, not out of obligation, but out of worship, out of love for their Savior that He would come into this dark world and reveal the par excellence life that would be far greater that would allow us to say at the end of our days, Gloria, Gloria Deo Excelsius, to God be the highest. Thank you so much, Christ, for coming into this world to bring the light in a manger, in a lowly place, in a place like Galilee that so many think very lowly of. But we know that you look at the heart, not necessarily the physical circumstances of a person. We say here, we see here that following is not necessarily something that is easy. Will not walk in the darkness, he continues on in verse 12. It's the strongest negation that the Greek language has. Will not walk. And the idea here is that he will not even start the process of the behaviors that go and follow in that particular lifestyle. You can fill in the blank for your own life and applications. There's so many to that here. But Jesus is saying here, not that you never backslide or that you never sin, but that why even begin the process? Don't do it. You're here. You've got a family. You've got people that are willing to pour into your life to give you the light of the word, to expose you to that truth, to labor with you in the mornings and the evenings and in parenting and in dying to sin. Don't begin the processes of fellowship in the darkness because if we have fellowship in the darkness, we do not know him at all. 1 John 1, uh, 1, 1, verses 1 through 10, the whole chapter really. So he's trying to convince us, don't even begin that process, guys. Instead, he forbids that. He rules it out as a being of possibility altogether. That sense of conduct of life that's conveyed by walk is not merely practical as much as it is the whole stance of a believer. We can walk some days really well, some days really bad, but the whole stance of the believer is what he's aiming and grasping at here. He's saying, don't be a consumeristic Christian who's here on Sundays and not on Monday through Friday. Don't be a consumeristic Christian who praises him with your lips but not in your hearts. He's saying, walk like Christ, who we learn about in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 6 and verse 8 says this, or verses 8 through 9 really. This is our example right here, guys. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Jesus, he's talking about. Verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Don't begin that process of hating your brother or all the other things that we could do by walking in the darkness or by the deeds of the flesh. Don't even continue on. Instead, at the end of verse 12, Have the light of life is what he wants you to get out of this passage. Have the light of life. That is the ultimate goal of verse 12, that you leave it knowing and having the light of life. Not having a form of Christianity, 
but having the function in your life, what it means to be a Christian, to live fully in your conduct of life. That blessing and that assurance that comes and flows from that. That you don't be like the man in Psalm 1-1 who says, walks in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but instead you delight in the law of the Lord because you're a Christian. Don't be like those who loved the world in 1 John chapter 2 where it says in verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, 15, it says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. They are attractive sometimes, right? But if anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. Jump down to verse 19, and it says, They went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us. We know as Christians that we love the light, that we have the light, we possess it. We're walkers in the light, not walkers in darkness and doubting. Doubting is constantly a synonymous theme with darkness in the New Testament. We know that Jesus is our example, and in Him there's no darkness at all, so we can only keep going and keep walking and keep having eternal life. We haven't reached any conclusion in our life yet. We're not good. we got to keep on going because we want to walk in obedience. Yes, it's done on the cross in our salvation, but it's not done in our lives in our sanctification. Keep at it, beloved. Fellowship and walk in the light says this in 1 John, and you notice how much I'm referencing 1 John, but remember, that is almost a commentary to this passage in the Gospel of John. It says, if we say we have fellowship in the light in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another. Walking in the light also means you're going to get along with one another better. Is that a beautiful thing? You're not going to be angry and complaining and discontent with one another, but you're going to have that life and have that to the best of your abilities as you profess being a believer in Baltimore Bible Church. That is the ultimate goal of verse 12, that you will have the light. Commentary from Kittle says this, Conversion is a movement from darkness to light. I pray that that has happened in your life. I pray that that is descriptive of you, that you have moved in your heart stance from a life of darkness to a total light of life. Because if it's not true of you, you will keep grasping for water without living water. You'll grasp for bread without living bread. And you will grasp for truth, always learning and never understanding. And you will also not understand the truths that he reveals in these next statements in this passage If you have the light of life, then you will also know these three eternal truths in verses 13 through 20. You have that responsibility here today to make amends with your Savior, either to walk better or to walk for the first time in the light of life. And there are pastors here, and I'm sure Matt and others would be willing to discuss that with you. George, to hit him up over coffee and have that discussion because that is the whole point of light coming into a manger. And revealing truth for us. 
so that you don't have to navigate this world lonely and afraid, but you can navigate it victorious with that torch like an Olympian proceeding in the beginning of the praise for God. So if you have this light, you will know these three eternal truths in John chapter 8, verse 13 through 20. And that is our second point. He testifies of three eternal truths. Eternal truth number one, you'll find in verse 13 through 14, the source of his truth. In verses 15 through 18, you will find eternal truth number two, the authority of his truth. In verses 19 through 20, you will find eternal truth number three, the facts of his truth. And what's interesting here is John did all the work for me. He broke out the structure of this for me. It's beautiful when scripture makes sense and it flows and has a sense of back and forth. And what we see here is three consecutive statements that are kind of like the English if-then statements. And that's what we do. We look at those kind of grammatical cues and we take our outline from that. That's what expository preaching is, giving you the author's intention of what is in the scripture here. And the intention of the author here is for us to know that these eternal truths are true. And that he does if-then statements to prove them. The first two, eternal truth one and eternal truth two, are the idea that if he was tried in court, he would hold up. The future potentiality of him coming to court, he would be testified not guilty. Whereas, you know what the Pharisees did, guilty before proven innocent. (laughs) He's saying, I'm innocent, guys. Let's go and drag our attention to verse 13 for the first point, the source of his truth. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Well, that's that verse drawing all the way back to John chapter 7, verse 52. They're saying guilty without a chance to be proven innocent. Remember, they left off where Nicodemus was reminding them of an Old Testament rule about having two to three witnesses, getting the full story You don't want to go and talk to somebody without getting both sides of the story, right? We have that same practice, the practice of church discipline, as you find in Matthew chapter 18. This is a good practice. It's a good practice that Jesus believed in himself as well. And Nicodemus reminded them of this, but they try to catch him. They try to say, listen, you're not fulfilling Deuteronomy 17 verse 6. You're testifying of yourself. But that's not actually what happened here in the text. In particular, The groups were not being accurate to what they professed to believe, what they professed to worship. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, it says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, 15, he says, Two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The Pharisees disregarded God's word. What is their point and function in the church? Could you imagine a pastor disregarding the word of God in contempt for another believer? He'd be disqualified. But that's what they are doing here, and Jesus doesn't play fast and loose with Scripture. He reminds them in verse 14, he says, Remember that if you put me on the stand, I'd hold. I'd be true. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Even if I needed that, if I needed to prove myself, it would end up being factual. 
And what he's saying is, you might have thought about John chapter 5, verse 31, where I said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But you forgot to read the rest of the context in verse 32. There is another who testifies of me. He goes on to talk about the Father being a testimony of him. He goes on to talk about Scripture being a testimony of him. He goes on to talk about John the Baptist being a testimony of him. He's got the greatest testimonies of the world. He's got scholarly, reputable testimonies for himself. The whole Old Testament testifies to Jesus. Why couldn't they see that again? Because they were blinded by all these other things going on. And may it never be that we be blinded, beloved. That we be blinded by so much of the busyness. I mean, Christianity can sometimes feel like whack-a-mole. Everybody just bringing up new issues to whack. Stick to the word. Stick to the light that will give eternal life. Jesus is saying, I would, held up, I would be held up in court and I would be validated. Jesus is saying here that truth My testimony is truth. He's Christianizing that word, that sincerity of his message. He's saying, you can't hold me in contempt because I am the very one who possesses all that encompasses truth. Not the Lagos, but me. He says in John chapter 1 verse 14, I am full of grace and truth. The knowledge of truth is communicated to humanity through the message of Jesus Christ. He bears witness to the truth. It says in John chapter 8, verse 32, just a few verses later, if you abide in my word, you will truly be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will deliver you. They needed to grab at that understanding. They needed to understand that his message was truth. It's the whole reason why he came into the world to expose them to their darkness. That believing and trusting in everything else is believing and trusting in nothing at all. And he continues on here in verse 14. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He understands that his zip code isn't from necessarily Galilee in his humanity that he's referring to, but from heaven in his deity. He's concerned about not what the Pharisees are concerned about, about being a human with limited knowledge. He is revealing the fact that he's the creator of the world. John chapter 1 reveals to us a truth that is before even Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, that he was in the beginning. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Co-equal, pre-existent, self-existent deity. He didn't need them to remind him of an Old Testament law that was taken out of context and given to him in condemnation. They needed to have this eternal life and to know these eternal truths and to know that his source was from heaven, was from the Father. But they couldn't grasp in verse 14 where he, was gonna co- where he came from and where he was going. They couldn't remember John chapter 1. They couldn't remember Genesis chapter 1. They were so focused on so many other things. They couldn't remember the source of his truth. That he is the Lagos. He's the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the resurrection of the life and the resurrection of death. That's his divine privileges. And we here leave verse 
13 through 14 with this, that we've got to know the source. That his truth comes from heaven. It's wisdom from above and not wisdom from above. From below. <laughs> above. Wisdom from below. It's credible. It's validated. It would hold up in court. It's authoritative. And that's exactly what we arrive with at eternal truth number two as communicated in verses 15 through 18. The authority of his truth. You got to first have eternal life. You got to know the source of his truth and then you can know the authority of his truth. Turn with me to verse 15 through 18. You people judge according to the flesh, verse 15, and I am not judging anyone. You people judge according to the flesh. They're all, all concerned about the outward appearance, the external appearance. They're all concerned about zip codes and forms of worship and praying on the corners and tithing their cumin and all of these manifestations of religion but not necessarily relationship. They're not getting it. I mean, he had already said in John chapter 7, verse 24, amidst the Jews in the temple, do not judge according to appearance but judge with a righteous judgment. They should have known that in John chapter 7, verse 24. But he says, even if I do judge, in verse 16, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. He reminds them about that Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 passage, about Deuteronomy 19, that his testimony is on not just one witness, but hundreds of witnesses in the prophecies of the Old Testament and John the Baptist and God himself, God the Father. The consequence of his judgment is reality. It is authority as we see here. He's not alone. He has the most credible witnesses testifying for him on the stand. God the Father. He judges with unity. And we know one of the divine privileges of Jesus, in fact, in the Trinity, in the relationships of the persons of the Trinity, that Jesus would be given that judgment of resurrection and life. That's his authority to do. In fact, we see this in John chapter 5, verse 25. It says, here it kind of alludes to the meaning of this verse 16. John chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. I'll jump to verse 26, actually. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in him. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jump down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. It's true. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify by myself, my testimony is not true. Verse 32, the middle of it, or sorry, verse uh, 37. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. Jesus is going to hold up in court because of his source and because of his authority. Him and the Father testify of the same judgment. Verse 17, he continues on and says, Even in your law, it has been written of the testimony of two men is true. He's reminding them of the authority of Scripture, not the authority of Pharisees. Pastors and preachers and teachers and lions and tigers and bears, whatever it may be, we only have the authority that is in the Word of God. That's why we are expository preachers, because we have nothing to say. 
we want to expose this to you so that it reigns true in your life so that you can walk and have life and know eternal truths. I pray that we can resonate true with verse 18, that we know he is the I am, he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me, reminding them of that verse in John chapter 5, verse 37. Do you remember that God the Father testified of Jesus? Do you remember that Isaiah testified of Jesus? Do you remember that all the Old Testament prophets testified of Jesus? Do you know that truth? Because if you know not only the source of his truth and the authority of his truth, then you will know this last one in particular, in verses 19 through 20, the facts of his truth. The facts of his truth. And the reason why this is a little different is because this if-then statement in the original language is more of a contrary if-then statement. You say this, but it's really this way. Read it more like that. It's contrary to the facts is what he's trying to get across here in verses 19 through 20. It says, And so they were saying to him, Where is your father? They're wondering about a zip code again, guys. Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, read that as contrary to the fact of that. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Again, draw your attention to know knew, and know. There's a play on here that John is communicating to us through the words of Jesus here. Know is what we call this perfect tense in the Greek. It's the idea that it happened in the past, but has ongoing continuation in present day. That if you were truly a Christian in the past, you would be living and know who Jesus is and believe in his truth and know his truth and have life today. But then, as he says here in verse 19, you know neither me, nor my father. Now switches to a different verbiage which has to do more with the experience of Christianity. That you didn't know in the past and it wasn't perfect and completed in the past because it's not being experienced today in the present. You would know my father also. I mean, this is something that's true to us here today. If we prayed a prayer at 12, are we knowing Jesus today? It's not a past profession, but a present position. And we have to understand that as Christians, if we have the life, we're not walking characteristically as our lives are descriptive in the darkness. We are knowing Christ in the life. We're growing in the truths of the life. We know light because we're exposing ourselves to it day by day. We hold the mirror the light up to our life, and we say, expose me, reveal to me any crevice of sin, any crevice of darkness, because I want to walk further in fellowship with my fellow saints here at Baltimore Bible Church. He wants them to be intimately acquainted in close relationship with the God who is the, I am the light of the world. When truth meets its Savior, it's worship, not worry. It's obedience, not opining. It's love, not killing. And that's what we've got to get out of here today. And contrary to all the facts, if they knew him, they would know him now. Contrary to the street corner prayers that they did forever. Contrary to the times when they entered the holies of holies. Contrary to the tithing of their spices. And contrary to the work, not working on Sundays and not even doing a single piece of work. They don't know him intimately right now. And let that not be the case for you and I. 
that we would practice religion but not have the eternal life and not know the eternal truths. That's important for us today. That is a huge major takeaway from this time. We go to verse 20, he transitions, and it talks a little bit more about the context of this passage. As we understand the facts of this truth, the facts is that their hearts were set in the treasury. Jesus, for no uncertain reasons, taught this in the treasury. In fact, they had turned the treasury, it says these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Josephus, an Old Testament scholar, talked about the immense quantity of money that they would have kept as the people of Israel in these chambers. In particular, they started to take it a little different and create little compartments for rich Jews to keep their furnishings. I'm sure that's not what Christ had in mind when he had set up these furnishing rooms of riches for the people. But he was saying, where is your heart at? Is it in religion or is it in the relationship? He wanted the truth to hit him where it hits the most. Sometimes it's our checkbooks. Sometimes it's our time. But ultimately, all of it was getting in the way of them knowing these truths. Because the facts were that they did not know him at all. Well, it says this in the very end of verse 20. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus had more exposing to do. John chapter 12, verse 35, it says, And for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. Psalm 32, verse 4 says, Find him in a time when he may be found. Today is that day when you can find Christ, when you have been exposed to the light of life, when you can repent of your sins and turn your mind from trusting in your finances or in anything else and trusting solely in Christ, not just knowing about Christ, not just affirming his things, but personally trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior, as the light of the world, as the source of his truth, as the authority of truth and as the facts of your judgment. Because one day you will stand before a judge And hopefully you can say, I have walked in the light. I have the light and I am going to let it shine. As we conclude here, there are two takeaways we need to conclude and wrap up with. If you're an unbeliever, no longer walk in darkness. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the revelation that has been revealed today by the light of the word of God. And if you're a believer today, I believe the hymns of Luke 1 and 2 are appropriate for us. And that's what we're going to sing a little bit in a second. But one that I want to point out to you is Angels We Have Heard on High. Resonating with that Luke 2 verse 13 through 14, where we get that Glorio Deo Excelsis, where we believe that it's all about God and the highest. It says this in Luke chapter 2 verse 13, through 14. And this should be our anthem as walking away from this passage. And suddenly there appeared with the angel of a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let that be the light we walk in. Amen.
To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.